0: Today's episode is brought to you by Leatherman Data Services. Check out the information-rich maps that they could create for you at ldshmaps.org. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium. Episode 48, The Battle of Yeromiax. In autumn 629, while Heraclius was making peace with the Sassanids, a group of Arab raiders attacked a Byzantine garrison at the village of Muta. Muta lies a few miles south of the city of Areopolis in southern Palestine, east of the Jordan River, south of the Dead Sea. The Roman garrison was largely made up of Christian Arabs, and was moving south to resecure imperial control of the area as Persian troops slowly withdrew. It's possible that they were specifically sent there to make sure no troublemakers were about when the emperor made his special trip to Jerusalem. The Muslim Arabs they encountered were probing north into territory that had been laxly policed during the last few years. The forces involved were probably only a few thousand on each side. They fought a pitched battle, though, and the Byzantine troops were victorious. The Muslims retreated south again. It's highly doubtful that the imperial forces had any idea that the men they had just driven off were adherents to a new religion, or that they were part of a much larger movement. Over the next five years, reports drifted north of the turmoil in Arabia and the movement of tribes on the empire's border. But still, there was no particular reason to assume this was a preview of an actual invasion. Five years later, though, in 634, the situation had changed. To describe to you the Muslim invasion of the Roman Empire presents many challenges. As I mentioned during the Persian Wars, we don't have very helpful historians from the Byzantine side. There are sources available, but none of them understood who the new rivals were or where they'd come from, and later accounts that contain more details are generally assumed to have been heavily influenced by the work of Muslim historians the Muslim histories present even greater problems. They are largely based on oral traditions of what took place and not written down until a couple of centuries later. Certainly, chronologically, they are a tangled mess, with the poor historians of later centuries left with no reliable way to date the stories they'd heard and so forced to fit them into a narrative as best they could. I will go into all of this in more detail at the end of the century. What this means for the podcast is that there may be gaps in perspective that you would expect to be filled in. I can't claim to have done a great job explaining the Sasanid point of view, for example, on their wars with Rome, but generally I explained motives and I talked about personalities where I could. For these early Islamic invasions, I don't plan on talking about the Arab side of things in even that level of detail. I will attempt to do some of that later, but I think it's simpler for now to avoid those minefields and stick to the Roman experience of the next 65 years. To elaborate on why Heraclius and his contemporaries were not perturbed by reports of movement beyond the borders, we have to remember that the Romans had lived alongside the Arabs since Augustus's day. Bedouin raids on the settled communities were a regular occurrence, and over the last two centuries, the Arab presence in Palestine and Syria had grown considerably. You all know about the Ghassanids and the confederation of tribes they began to organise under Justinian's watch. But Arabs of all walks of life had become a common feature of life in the East, whether as traders, soldiers, or indeed landowners. Justinian's policy of formally bringing some tribes into the military hierarchy had encouraged more and more of their brethren to move north in search of Roman cash. Often these tribes would attack those who were already on the lists of federate troops in the hopes of becoming enough of a nuisance to either replace them or join them as independent contractors for the empire. So again, news of Arab tribes capturing settlements on the borders of Palestine wasn't really news to Heraclius' government. In fact, in the wake of the Persian withdrawal, it was probably to be expected that ambitious Arabs would attempt to fill the power vacuum. And contrary to what you may have heard, We have no reliable evidence that Muhammad or his successors sent explicit word to the Romans that their movement was a united one or one representing a new religion. And even if they had, it's doubtful that imperial agents would have been particularly concerned. The eastern Mediterranean had been the cradle of hundreds of religious sects for centuries. To follow what happened next, I have uh, reposted a map of the empire's eastern provinces, at the website and on Facebook. By 634, Arab raiding parties were back in imperial territory. According to tradition, they were in four separate groups and stuck initially to the Palestinian countryside. Some appeared back in the region of Areopolis, while others struck west toward Gaza. It's possible that their goal was to subdue all the Bedouin or nomadic tribesmen of those areas and bring them under their sway. However, they soon had more success. The garrison of Areopolis was easily overrun, and when the dukes of Palestine brought troops south to clear out these unruly invaders, his men were routed. According to legend, the dukes himself was sewn up inside a dead camel and suffocated to death as punishment for some shady dealings. These were only relatively small defeats for the Byzantines, but they got the attention of Heraclius in the north. By June, his brother Theodore had taken command of regiments of the Army of the East and moved south to combat the raiders in the region between Jerusalem and Gaza, just the other side of the Dead Sea, from Areopolis. Theodore probably led 10,000 men and was looking to bring the raiders to battle and drive them out of Palestine for good, the traditional way to deal with larger Arab raids. The Muslims, however, had just been reinforced. Commander Khalid ibn al-Walid had broken off operations against the Sasanids in the deserts to the east and marched west to join up with the forces in Palestine. When the assembled troops lined up for battle against the Byzantines, they outnumbered them and defeated them sharply. Theodore was forced to retreat north at speed to tell his angry and now very concerned brother about the scale of the Arab invasion. This defeat left the countryside of Palestine at the mercy of the Arabs. Roman garrisons still held the walled cities, but the men inside could no longer easily communicate with one another. Many people began fleeing to the cities for protection, and joining them were the soldiers who had routed from Theodore's army, adding to the fear about the strength of these new arrivals. The confused state of Palestine led some local leaders to surrender peacefully to the invaders. Already, Bostra had been captured by Khalid, its garrison presumably shocked to see an army appear from the direction of Persia. But after Theodore's defeat, Scythopolis and Pella both came to terms and accepted Arab garrisons. It's not clear exactly what Heraclius did during this year, other than sending word to, to gather an army, but traditionally he is reported to have begun ordering specific commanders to be put in charge of the defense of individual cities, and perhaps making speeches to the inhabitants of cities he was passing through that they should help defend their walls. This doesn't seem an implausible suggestion because Heraclius' behaviour over the next few years indicate that he hoped to wear the Arabs out. Perhaps still seeing them as merely raiders, he probably thought that if cities could deny them for a year or two, they would either leave or fall prey to counterattacks. Certainly, sieges in the summer heat would not have been comfortable. However, the citizens of the Levant had learnt a very different lesson than the ones Heraclius was trying to teach as you may remember during Khusro’s great invasion of 540, most cities were more than happy to pay the Persians for the right not to be sacked. The same dynamic played out in 613 and afterwards when Shahvaraz showed up on their doorstep. It made more sense then to peacefully accept Persian occupation rather than hold out for imperial aid that might take up to a decade to show up. The Arabs were seen in a similar way, and many thought it better to make friends with them rather than hold out and be slaughtered. Disaffected Jews and Monophysites, of course, had very good reason to see the departure of imperial officials as a good day for them. And the corollary to this is that the one city which had put up stiff resistance during those campaigns was Jerusalem, which of course had been rather brutally sacked back in 614. Over the next year, Damascus and Emisa surrendered to Khalid. There was resistance, but once a siege was set up and terms were offered, it seemed the sensible thing to do. Many cities had not been captured, though, and Heraclius was busy in Antioch, gathering an army large enough to defeat the Arabs in battle, which would hopefully put an end to this embarrassing episode. The emperor appointed two commanders to take charge of the army, an Armenian general Vahan and the Sakilarios, also called Theodore, an indication of the financial instability that yet another invasion of imperial territory had caused. They gathered together the rest of the army of the east and possibly contingents from the army of Armenia, anyone who could be spared, and they contacted the chief of the Ghassanid Arabs and other friendly tribes to tell them that their assistance would be needed. The Roman army made its way to the camp of the Ghassanids at Jabea in the Golan Heights, not that far from the Sea of Galilee, in between Scythopolis and Bostra on the map. As the Roman forces moved south, the Muslims ordered their men occupying Damascus and Emesa to abandon the cities and come south to regroup. They took up positions in the canyon of the river Yeromiaks, or in Arabic, Yarmouk. I found when researching this episode that the place names of various battle sites across the Roman Near East were all listed with their Arabic names, which is jumping the gun a little, I feel, The Battle of Yarmouk is, of course, how this confrontation is now known, but in a moment of petty pedantry, I decided to name this episode after the Byzantine name for the river. This position in the canyon blocked the easiest path to the rest of Palestine. There were two other rivers nearby, both of which ran through narrow ravines on the sides of the plain on which the battle would eventually take place. There is a modern photo of the area at the website and on Facebook. Each side now had about 20,000 men. Again, if you are a history book reader, you may see reports that the emperor gathered 40,000 or 80,000 or even more than 100,000 men. But these are estimates clearly influenced by later realizations of Islam's importance. Surely the Romans gathered every man under arms to fight the great Muslim armies. But in reality, of course, it was not clear that this was the giant threat it turned out to be. And more importantly, the Romans had only been able to conjure up 50,000 men to take into Persia during the Great War. At this point, with Heraclius trying to bring the budget back into line, 20,000 represented about all he could spare from the armies of the East. The Romans possibly had a numerical advantage uh, once they'd called on their allied Arabs and Armenians, and apparently the two sides made camp about five miles apart in late May 636, but did not attempt battle for at least two months. Vahan and Theodore may have been trying to find a diplomatic way to disperse the Muslims. Negotiations or espionage would certainly have been tried. Heraclius had defeated both Phocas and Khosrow by exploiting divisions within their own ranks, and it would be natural for him to attempt to do the same again. But this time, he did not succeed. Heraclius was not present, though. He remained back in Antioch. For the third time in his life, he was forced to scan the horizon anxiously, waiting for life-changing news. Now aged about 60 it was probably impractical for the emperor to lead troops personally. The sources talk about him feeling his age, and it's possible that he suffered from dropsy, or a build-up of fluid beneath the skin, which would have made riding around quite painful. There are various stories about Byzantine disunity, that supplies were not forthcoming from Damascus, that troops tried to proclaim Vahan emperor, that the Ghassanids disobeyed orders or indeed fled. Some of these may be true, some of these may be fiction. It would not be a stretch to imagine that there were supply and communication issues given the sudden and unexpected nature of this new conflict, but we're suspicious of any excuses in the sources that might be trying to explain the coming Byzantine defeat. As the summer dragged on, Muslim reinforcements began to trickle in, which may have convinced Varhan that it was time to cease talking and begin fighting. It's not clear how long the battle took, but the major engagements seemed to have covered about a week. Each day would bring losses to both sides, but no major advantage gained. It would make sense from the Byzantine point of view to keep pushing the Arabs, but never going for a decisive blow that could risk a loss on their side. Again, from their point of view, if they could just break the Arabs and make them run, surely they would head back to their Arabian bases and uh, this whole episode would dissipate. The Muslims adopted a defensive position and bore the brunt of several Byzantine offensives. Each side had large contingents of infantry, which locked horns but couldn't make much headway against one another. The Byzantine cavalry was able to push back its Muslim counterpart on multiple occasions. In the Arabic sources, the defenders either managed to summon up the courage to defend their camp each time the Romans advanced, or in other tellings, it was the women of the camp who chastised the men to. uh, make them turn and face down the Roman cataphracts. Another explanation, perhaps the most credible, is that after being pushed back by the better-trained Roman cavalry repeatedly, the Arabs had set an ambush within their camp after several days of these cavalry engagements. This included tying their camels together like a defensive wall and hiding soldiers behind them, ready to pounce on the unsuspecting Roman cavalry. Whatever really happened, the crucial turn of the battle does seem to come when the Roman cavalry were driven off. Traditionally, credit is given to Khalid, who managed to encircle the Byzantine horse archers during one attack, cutting them off from their own infantry. The Romans who could broke and fled from this encirclement, and Khalid sent half of his cavalry in pursuit to drive them away from the battle. Now isolated, the imperial infantry were soon attacked on the flanks by the remainder of the Muslim cavalry and began to suffer heavy casualties. It's not clear whether the Byzantine foot soldiers panicked and fled during that day, or if they waited until night and only then took their desperate position as a reason to make a run for it. Either way, The Muslims had occupied the only bridge across the river and then began to storm the Roman camp. Cut off from both lines of retreat, the hapless foot soldiers ran headlong into the ravines. Some made it safely across the rivers, but many tumbled off the sides in the chaos and fell to their deaths. The casualties from the battle and the retreat were very high, and the Arabs were ruthless in their pursuit. Playing for keeps, they had been instructed to hunt down every soldier that they could. Some were taken prisoner, I'm sure, but if the plan was to cripple the Roman military in Syria, then it worked. The discipline of the Arabs in creating maximum casualties turned this from a great victory into a decisive one. This was exactly why the Roman army of the Strategicon era avoided decisive battles. Highly trained soldiers were hard to replace, and after plague and 30 years of war, these men would prove to be irreplaceable. We don't hear of Vahan or Theodore again, so we can assume they died in the fighting or the retreat. So thorough was the Muslim pursuit that it seems like only 180 miles north at Emesa were Byzantine deserters able to properly regroup. As ever, we have no idea how the emperor felt when the news reached him. It's not hard to imagine his disappointment and dismay to see provinces won so painstakingly with his blood and sweat, surrendered so quickly. But again, you have to wonder how he saw this on a more existential or spiritual level. Why had God now forsaken him after supporting him for so long? Of course, Heraclius was in a strange position of having seen all of this before. He was in charge when the Roman military had been utterly routed by Shavaraz and the Sasanids, and in the same region too so he was at least in a position to know exactly what to do next. Syria had to be abandoned. The Taurus Mountains had stood as a solid obstacle to the advance of Shahin and Shabaraz. It would now have to hold back a new enemy. Certainly now, Heraclius issued orders for towns to hold out for as long as possible and made special appointments of military men to take charge of the cities of Mesopotamia, and Armenia to guard them against falling too. The Arabs were not to be fought in open battle. It was time to batten down the hatches and hold on to what we still have. Heraclius agreed a truce with the Muslims in 637 to allow the residents of northern Syria the chance to move north into imperial territory. He left Antioch that year and made his way slowly back to the Hieria Palace, just across from Constantinople. His route took him first into Cilicia, the strip of land between Antioch and the Taurus Mountains, where he apparently tried to create something of a no-man's land to thwart any Arab attempts to follow him into Anatolia. He had a fortress or two destroyed, including allegedly the city of Melitene, he ransacked the countryside and certainly ordered any troops there to abandon it and cross the mountains. He then made his way to Edessa to confirm the arrangements for the defence of the area before he made the trek across the mountains himself. Once there, he ordered a concentration of the remaining armies in Anatolia and ordered some more forts to be built in anticipation of further attack. He had suffered badly 20 years before from the Sassanids' ability to range across the area, and he was determined to put up a stout defense this time. It's worth commenting on the true cross for a moment. Restored to Jerusalem by Heraclius, of course, a few years earlier, the Christian histories state that the emperor picked up the cross as he retreated from Syria and took it back to Constantinople. It's possible this was part of the arrangements of the truce, but considering Jerusalem is quite a way south of the Yarmouk battle site, and Heraclius was initially at least even further north at Antioch, it sounds fairly unlikely. Of course, the cross could have been put on a ship fairly easily, but that isn't mentioned, and the more you read about the true cross, the murkier the details become. It's possible that the original cross found by Helena had already been broken into pieces, and so there was no one cross to maintain possession of. Come the Crusades, traditions emerge of the Christians in Jerusalem hiding their fragments of the cross from the Muslims, so who knows. It's not hard to imagine that Heraclius would want everyone to believe that the cross was safely in his possession. Just another PR spin on Disaster – for a man who'd been through this before. The majority of residents of Syria and Palestine quickly came to terms with their new reality. Damascus fell soon after the battle of Yarmouk. Emesa did the following year in 637 along with Jerusalem and Gaza. In 638 the Muslims moved in force into northern Syria, taking Antioch, Veria, Cyrus Hierapolis to name but a few. And that same year, the Caliph Omar himself visited Syria to begin the administration of the area and to visit Jerusalem. Some coastal cities hung on for a little while longer and were resupplied by sea. Caesarea Maritima held out until 640, along with Beirut, Gabala and Laodicea. With no likelihood of a relief army coming to the rescue, resistance in most areas quickly evaporated. Antioch rebelled shortly after accepting submission, but it was an exception. The garrison troops in Palestine, who were able to, withdrew to Egypt. The only good news for Byzantium was that when the Arabs entered the cities of Syria, Yersinia pestis welcomed them with its ugly embrace. The Battle of the Yarmouk is one of the most decisive in Roman history. It's certainly on a par with Adrianople for how it managed to destroy an entire Roman army that was never adequately replaced. The Goths still had to contend with both a western and an eastern empire, which kept them busy for some time. What made the Yarmouk so permanent a change in the military landscape was that later in the same year, at the Battle of Al-Qadisiyah, the Sasanid army suffered an equally catastrophic defeat, meaning that the Arabs would not be hemmed in on two sides. There would be no major power for Heraclius to call upon to form another of his alliances with. Conversely, though, the Arab breakthrough in Persia and the collapse of the Sassanids that would follow did divert Arab energies toward Iraq, Iran. And beyond. Perhaps that actually enabled Heraclius' strategy of retreating behind the Taurus Mountains to take root. Heraclius was following a strategy that had worked for him before, exchanging territory for time. I doubt he knew that he was setting a precedent that would hold for centuries, or that the shock of the defeat of Yarmouk would entrench centuries of defensive warfare by a Roman military that was now determined to never offer open battle to the Arabs. The emperor certainly knew that there would be no major counterattack in his lifetime. There was no more church gold to melt down. There was no reserve of manpower that could be risked in a strike against the heart of Arab power. It's doubtful that Heraclius knew where that was anyway, and if he did, he certainly can't have imagined trying to march to Medina. He was obviously not the man to undertake such a mission anyway. Old and ill, Heraclius had done what he could, and returned to his palace a somewhat broken man. It's a sad note to end on today, but I don't see from the sources what more the emperor could have done. Next time, we will finally say goodbye to the Vasilevs and watch as the Roman world continues to crumble around him. A few housekeeping items before we go. One listener asked if the historyofbyzantium.com could have better links to past episodes in case you need to jump back and find one of the maps. I've now added a recent episodes menu that should help with this. A big thank you to worldpercussion.net for the frame drum sound effect for the passing of years. And a bigger thank you to those of you who've left iTunes reviews. We'll make those walls nice and strong. Finally, do bookmark ldshmaps.org. You never know when you might want an information-rich map for your dissertation, your project, or presentation. And Leathermans are history podcast fans like you, so they clearly know what they're talking about.